Will you please take your Bible now and turn with me to John chapter 19. One particular challenge faced by pastors and preachers everywhere, one I know firsthand, is learning how to say the same things to the same people in different ways. As a church, we come each Sunday to sing songs and hymns we've sung before to pray prayers we've prayed before, and to consider portions of God's Word we've considered before. We do this because the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't changed. For over 2,000 years, it is the same message, and we need to hear it today as much as we ever have. The gospel is about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It includes the return of Christ to heaven, where he reigns over all things in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, even today. And it looks forward to the second coming of Christ when he who has saved and is saving will indeed save to the uttermost as the manifold glory of our redemption is fully revealed. And so as we come to John 19 this morning to consider Jesus and His crucifixion, I recognize that these are uh, very familiar words to many of you. Only God knows how many sermons have been preached on the crucifixion, how many books and volumes have been written, how many songs and hymns have been penned and sung, How many people have come to faith in Christ through the consideration of His cross? And how many have had their faith necessarily strengthened? How many discussions on the subject have been had by seeker and skeptic alike? And so believe me, I am very much aware that I have nothing new to say. In fact, many others uh, throughout history have said it far, far better than I ever could or can. But I want you to know that my goal today is not to add something new to the conversation, but to consider again with you this old, old story. Over the past two weeks, we've already considered the humanity and deity of Christ, how how we see His human and divine natures both in play as He approached the cross. And today and over the next few weeks, we want to consider the cross itself and its many implications. For in this fallen world of trial and tribulation where sin and its effects are readily seen and felt, there is great hope in knowing that Jesus 
bore it all. And because Jesus bore his own cross for us, we can bear ours by his example and grace. And so let's read this together. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. And then we're going to zero in just on verses 17 and 18 this morning. Of course, we're coming, uh, we're, we're, we're catching the narrative midstream. Jesus is appearing before the Roman prefect at the time, uh, a man named Pontius Pilate. And already Pilate has uh, found him innocent of all charges. And yet, uh, Pilate taking the expedient path, not the right one, but the expedient one, uh, has refused to let him go. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, the crowds, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Jesus, or, or uh, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, 
which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come this morning to this place at this time, with our Bibles open to consider this passage, we ask for the enabling of the Holy Spirit that we might hear your voice speaking not only to all of us collectively, but to each of us individually. We ask that you would unstop our ears, that we would hear what you would have us hear, and that you would open our eyes the eyes of our hearts, that we would see what you would have us see. We pray that you would make our hearts receptive and ready to receive what you would have us receive. We would wonder and glory in your great love. For you so loved the world that you gave your only Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You sent your Son not to condemn the world but to save the world. Make us ready to receive this love gift from your hand and heart, even this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There they crucified him. Reads verse 18 in very matter-of-fact fashion and with very little detail. John, like the authors of the other New Testament Gospels, doesn't elaborate on the act of crucifixion itself. He didn't need to. Because those who were living with him at the time in the first century were well aware of what it entailed already. Already they knew there was no more terrible death. By this time, Jesus had already suffered so much. Just one night earlier, remember, uh, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was so anguished over what was facing Him that He actually sweat drops of blood. It's this rare condition, uh, medically documented, documented phenomenon of hematidrosis in which the tiny capillaries in the sweat glands burst. 
There in Gethsemane, he was betrayed. He was arrested without cause, deserted by his own friends. He was forcibly taken to the Jewish authorities who had been conspiring against him for months on end. Appearing before the council, he was interrogated by the high priest and beaten by the palace guards. Charged with blasphemy, he was dragged to Pontius Pilate because the Jews wanted him dead and wanted Pilate to sign off. He was questioned by Pilate, found innocent, yet still flogged without mercy as the Roman soldiers literally ripped his flesh to the bone. Making sport of him, they pushed him and they punched him and they spit on him repeatedly. And though he had suffered so much already, it was just the beginning, for now came the crucifixion itself. At this point, the cross beam, weighing about a hundred pounds or so, would have been placed upon his back and across his shoulders while he carried its full weight. The rough and heavy wood digging into his open wounds with each strained step. And surrounded by four Roman guards, he would be led through Jerusalem, through the crowds to a place outside the city called the place of a skull. Probably because the site, when viewed from a distance, uh, resembled a skull in some way. In Aramaic, it was called Golgotha. In Latin, it's known as Calvary. And once here, his arms would have been stretched across the crossbeam. Large metal spikes would be quickly driven into each wrist. The beam would be raised and hoisted into place, fixed to the upright post that was already in place. The legs of Jesus would dangle until one foot was placed over the other while a third spike was driven through them both, leaving only enough flex in the knees to allow for minimal movement so that as Jesus struggled for air, he could push down on the lower spike to lift himself up one painful breath at a time. After hours or even days in some cases of such torture, the victims of crucifixion would eventually die of shock or exposure, blood loss or suffocation. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, developed by the Carthaginians, and perfected by the Romans. Even historians early historians comment on its cruelty. Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. Tacitus used the word despicable. Cicero said it was most cruel and terrible, incapable of description. So terrible, in fact, that no human citizen was ever allowed to undergo it no matter how heinous their crime. And yet, though the physical details of Christ's death are significant and worthy of our reflection, the Gospels emphasize something more. They draw our attention not to the physical side of crucifixion as much as the spiritual reality 
that was taking place. And so they took Jesus, John writes. And he went out, verse 17, bearing his own cross. And for weeks I've been thinking about these words, about this phrase, bearing his own cross. Last month I sat down and began to map chapters 19, 20, and 21 as I set my preaching schedule through the spring. And I was struck by this saying. And what strikes me about it is that John seems to be referring not to a literal cross only, but a figurative one as well. You see, the synoptics, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they make clear that by this point in the ordeal, Jesus was physically unable to carry his actual cross. Already he had suffered so much and was so worn down that he simply did not have the physical strength to carry that 100-pound beam to Golgotha. Few could. Could you? I mean, even without the beatings and the flogging, could you carry such weight through the city uphill? And so it's no surprise, really, that Jesus collapsed under the weight, especially when considering what he had already endured. And in the synoptics, we're told that soldiers thus seized a passerby, a man named Simon from North Africa, from the city of Cyrene. Simon obviously had traveled a long way, no doubt coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And apparently Simon was standing along the path that led uh, to the place of crucifixion. And when Jesus collapsed under the weight of his cross, Simon was ordered to carry it the rest of the way. And so the question I've been mulling, is if Simon was carrying the actual cross, the physical beam itself in those moments, which cross was Jesus bearing as he made his way to Calvary? And the answer is that he was bearing the infinitely heavier one. Even before his crucifixion, he had begun to bear the entire weight of sin. And I think John is thinking along these lines, speaking figuratively to the spiritual significance of the cross. You know, even when we go through hard times, we sometimes say, don't we, that it feels like we're bearing the weight of the world. But only one person has ever truly done that. Only Jesus And so Christ's physical sufferings, as real and excruciating as they were, are but a window through which we see his greater agony as he bore the weight of the world's sin. And then look closer with me. It says he bore his own cross. I think these three words, small words, his 
own cross. Just speak volumes into our lives. So steadfast was Jesus to the saving purposes of God that he obeyed the Father even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So committed was he to the work of redemption that the cross, the cross on which he died for us, effectively became his own. Though sinless, hear this, church, Though sinless, He so identified with us in this way that He carried and took our sins upon Himself as if they were His. You know, I cannot fathom love like this. Charles Wesley said so well, you know it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me? Who caused His pain for me? Who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Emptying himself of all but love, Jesus took my cross and yours and made it his own. Now can we just pause there for a moment? Jesus Christ, the perfect man, an eternal Son of God, loves you so deeply that He chose to take upon Himself that which was destroying you and was keeping you from God and had actually justly condemned you before God. And so how does the fact that He has paid the highest possible price affect you? Or another way to say it is, how do you respond to such love? How do you respond? Well, there really are just two responses, and both of which come into clearer focus as we unpack verse 18. There they crucified him, it says, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And again, if we cross-reference this verse with the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn that the two others who were crucified with Jesus were, were both thieves. They were robbers. They'd been found guilty. for their sin. So there were three crosses on Calvary that day. But no one paid attention to the other two. The Jews didn't. 
They thought of Jesus only, and they just continued their merciless barrage against Him. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, they jeered in Matthew 27. Oh, He trusts in God, they derided. Let God deliver Him now. He saved others, they mocked, but He cannot even save Himself. Come down now from the cross. Come down. Come down. So that we may see and believe. We're told that even the two criminals crucified with him, reviled him in the same way. Both men the one to the right of Jesus and to the left, were cursing Christ at first. And then something happened, something unexpected. Luke records that that while one was railing at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, though he was reviling Jesus at first also, he stopped doing so and actually began rebuking the man who continued to rail away. And he said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then the man says, But we're here justly. We're being punished justly. We're receiving, he said, the due reward of our deeds. Not this man. This man has done nothing wrong. And then in a moment that can only be described as miraculous, the man who had a change of heart was in fact having his heart changed then and there while on the cross the man was being drawn to Christ and he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. By the power of the Spirit of God, the man saw and affirmed that Jesus is the King whose kingdom is not of this world. He affirmed the Lordship of Christ and in his own way, with the only words he could think of at the time to express his newfound faith, he asked Jesus for grace. What did Jesus do? I'm sorry. It's too late for you. Is that what he said? Or, it just can't be done. Your sins are too many. Or, well, Maybe, maybe, maybe there's hope for you, but only after you first confess all your sins to God and come clean. Or, did Jesus say something like, How do I know you're really sincere? That you really mean it? 
that you're not just some deathbed conversion. He said, none of these. Instead, with grace and love beyond measure, he assured the man, promising in Luke chapter 23, he says, truly. I mean, these are, the Gospels are filled with these moments, but this is one of those moments. Can you imagine this moment? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And with that, the man was saved. In a matter of mere moments, he went from cursing Christ to saving faith in Christ. And maybe... Maybe that's you, or maybe it's someone you know. And what I want us to know is that this man reminds us that your past does not need to be your present or future. That things can change for the better in an instant, unexpectedly. And miraculously, this man reminds us that as long as you have breath, you have hope. That with God, nothing is impossible. This man reminds us that eternal matters matter most. And so in speaking to this man, Jesus speaks to to us too. Showing not only the way to be saved, but also providing assurance of salvation. And it's important that we notice that both men, both thieves, both men saw their need. Including the first man who railed at Christ. His problem wasn't that he didn't acknowledge his need, but that he acknowledged only his physical need. Anguishing on the cross, he knew his physical need very, very well and demanded that Jesus do something. The second man, however, saw his physical need, but also recognized that whatever he needed physically paled in comparison to what he needed spiritually. He looked beyond the temporal need of his body to see the eternal need of his soul. And in looking to the need of his soul, he saw his need of a Savior. He knew his sins very well. He knew that he was justly condemned and that Jesus was innocent, that Jesus died not for sins he had committed, but for the sins of others. And of course, of course he couldn't explain justification at this point, but he didn't have to. wanted to be saved and so he just cried out to Christ and thus having seen the need of his soul and the need of a savior and that Christ was that savior he entrusted himself to Jesus personally he dropped his guard basically and and opened himself to receive Jesus even as Jesus was receiving him and on that very same day after each had died they would be together in paradise. 
That's basically how a person is saved. Drawn by the Spirit of God, you come to see the need of your soul. You see that Christ can meet your need and only Christ. And you call out to Him personally, dropping your guard. You trust Him. And you entrust yourself to Him. And then we're told that Jesus was between these two thieves. Just another small detail I find significant. Jesus was not distant from them. He was not detached. And nor is He distant or detached from us. David in Psalm 22, a prophetic psalm about the cross, talks about a company of evildoers that encircled Jesus, no doubt referring to the vast numbers of people who were present at Christ's crucifixion. The prophet Isaiah, when describing this scene some 200 years before it, or I'm sorry, 700 years before it took place, said that Christ would be numbered with the transgressors. And so the enemies of the Lord surely meant this as a sign of disgrace. As if saying, look, look at your Jesus. Just a common criminal. But to those who know better, this is not disgrace at all. But rather the epitome of grace itself. That Jesus Christ, Lord of all and Savior of the world, came from heaven to earth to be among us to be with us not to be served but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many I like how Dr. R. Kent Hughes puts it when he says if the cross is a diagram of his love the positioning of the crosses with Jesus in the middle is a diagram of how his love is dispensed to the world And so Jesus stands among us all, between us all, across the path of humanity. And on the one side are those who see their spiritual and eternal need and trust Him. On the other are those who see only their physical and temporal need and either rail at Him or attempt to use Him. But the Christian life is not one of selfish gain. It is the Christ-centered life lived in gratitude for Jesus, coupled with a desire to follow in His steps. And I want to close this morning with an application along these lines. Do you remember when much earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Obviously, he's speaking figuratively, not expecting that we would carry an actual cross. 
But he's stressing the point that faith in Christ is obedient trust in Christ. Obedient trust. Okay? Faith in Christ is obedient trust in Christ. And so we just cannot get around this fact, church, that for Jesus and for those who trust Jesus, the cross is part and parcel to the Christian life. And so what does it mean? What what does knowing that Jesus went out bearing his own cross mean for us as we bear ours? First, it means that obedience to God is not always easy. You know, the world is fundamentally opposed to God. The sin nature within is fundamentally opposed to godliness. The enemy of our souls, the devil himself, is fundamentally opposed to God and godliness. And so, be not surprised that obedience can be costly. Second, it means to count the cost. You know, just after Jesus talked about taking up our cross, he spoke about this in parables. He mentioned the person, how the person who sets out to build a tower must first consider whether he has the money to complete the project. Or how a king who goes to war must first consider if he has the the resources necessary to win. And his point is that by counting the cost of discipleship up front, you are far more likely to persevere when it gets hard because it's going to get hard. And the fact that it gets hard, the fact that there's a cost involved, the fact that we need to count the cost, that means that we live between the now and not yet. There is so much that God has already done in our lives through His work of salvation and so much that He is doing in your life even right now. Frank and I are praying before the service this morning and he's just reminding... We do this occasionally where we're just reminding ourselves of of, of you and some of the things you're going through. And even if we don't know the details, we know that there are people in this room who are worn out. They're heavy laden. They're ashamed. They feel hopeless and helpless. There are people in this room who feel like they're in a dead-end situation. We're in this now. We're in this period of time between the now and not yet where God has done so much already. And even now, even in those situations I just described, even there he's doing so much that you can't see or know or understand. And 
yet we know that there is so much more that has yet to be revealed. We know that all God does is redemptive and good, but at present we're living in these middle chapters, as it were. These middle chapters in this divinely written story of redemption, a story that's still unfolding at a pace of God's choosing, a story of continuing conflict and cross-bearing. And finally, knowing that Jesus bore His cross and calls us to bear ours means, church, that He does not ask you to do anything that He has not already done to the nth degree. He is your example, and He is leading the way. Hear this. Whatever figurative crosses we bear, we bear only because Jesus first bore His. And so lay aside every weight Lay aside this sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus, Lord, help me to see, open my eyes, set the gaze of my soul heavenward, Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned and despised its shame and is now today seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinful men against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Amen. God, please come and just minister Thank you for the way you've been ministering. And will you just please comfort these, my brothers and sisters, and assure them of your presence, of your goodness, that you are with them and you are working in ways far beyond our understanding. You are working good in all things. And bring us again to Jesus today, tomorrow, throughout the day, that we would look to Him, indeed the author and perfecter of our faith, and follow His example, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. So we give us a vision of joy 
that we would endure well also. Thank you again for this love gift, for the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. May he forever be praised. Amen.